Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today, we're going to be doing yet another first for this podcast. Instead of talking about a specific distributor, or a specific filmmaker, or a specific movie, we're going to talk about a subgenre that reemerged in the 1980s films directed by famous musicians. Three of these musician filmmakers went on to make more movies, while two have never directed another film. We will be covering each of their first films. Musical artists directing movies was still somewhat of a novelty when the 80s began. Frank Sinatra made a war drama in 1965 called None But the Brave, the first ever co-production between a Japanese and American film company. The film was a minor success, but Sinatra would stick with crooning and acting after that. Frank Zappa co-directed 1971's 200 Motels, an avant-garde mix of Mothers of Invention documentary concert footage, and created backstage material, notable for starring both Ringo Starr and Keith Moon. The film was known for its experimental use of speed changes, double and triple exposures, and other video effects that were novel at the time, but it barely sold as many tickets as it cost to make. Zappa would direct a few more experimental concert films during the 1970s and 1980s, but he'd never make any kind of conventional commercial film. Bob Dylan would also direct a couple of documentary-like films, 1972's Eat the Document and 1978's Ronaldo and Clara. That latter film was co-written with playwright and actor Sam Shepard, and it also featured a series of fictional drama pieces that ran nearly four hours long, which was too much even for the most ardent Dylan supporter. But with the rise of VHS and MTV in the 1980s, more movie producers were willing to give more latitude to musicians, who were often heavily involved in the creation of their music videos, to bring their stories to the silver screen. Our first movie helped change the course of movies, but you may only be tangentially aware of it. In the early 1970s, Richard Elfman was a writer, director, and performer for the San Francisco-based musical theater group The Coquettes. When the group disbanded, Elfman would move to Paris, where he would become a member of Le Grand Magic Circus, which, in addition to performing in its own 800-seat theater on the southern edge of Paris, but also under the direction of famed film and theater director Peter Brook in London. One person who would become a member of the troupe would be Richard's little brother Danny, who would have his first professional gig playing violin beside his percussionist brother. After returning to Los Angeles towards the end of 1972, Elfman was inspired to start his own musical troupe, which he would call the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. They played a variety of music from the 1890s to 1950s with a special affinity for jazzy blues songs like Minnie the Moocher and St. James's Infirmary. The group would find local success in the clubs of Los Angeles and would start appearing in movies like Beverly Hills Cop's Martin Bress's AFI student film Hot Tomorrows and the sappy fantasy drama I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. These film appearances would inspire Elfman to start considering a career in filmmaking, and he would soon cede the leadership role of the Mystic Knights to his brother Danny. 
Danny loved the band, but he didn't love all the costumes and sets and other ephemera needed to stage the shows. And he would start steering the band away from the cabaret origins and become the new wave band that is, depending on the day, my favorite or second favorite band. So Richard would start working on a screenplay that would capture the troupe and their show before the pivot to a traditional band. Production would begin in October 1977 as the Hercules family, mostly on a soundstage that would be painted by Elfman's wife Marie and actor Hervé Velocher, who was acting in the movie as a favor to his former roommate, future filmmaker Matthew Bright, who was also a former bassist for the Mystic Knights and was one of the writers of the screenplay. The movie was shooting on 16mm film, 12 musical numbers, and a threadbare story to connect them all together. But as the shooting progressed, the film would grow in size, the storyline would evolve, and Elfman would start shooting in 35mm. He would reshoot scenes already filmed to take advantage of the larger film stock. Elfman would constantly run out of money during production. Most of the actors would put their salaries back into the film, and Elfman and his wife would mortgage their house to finish filming, and then had to assign the rights away in order to finish post-production. The now Forbidden Zone would have its world premiere at the Film X Film Festival in Los Angeles in March 1980, and would soon find a distributor in the Samuel Goldwyn Company. Goldwyn would send the film out as a Friday and Saturday night midnight movie, first at the Waverly Theater in New York City on July 16, 1982, and then the UA Cinema Center in Westwood on August 13th. The few playdates it would receive were mostly in cities where the now Oingo Boingo had a following. The film would get mostly negative reviews at the time, if it even got a review in the local paper of a theater it opened at. After the film played out in late fall of 1982, it would remain virtually unseen, save bootleg VHS copies traded from collector to collector for nearly 20 years. I had the pleasure of knowing Richard Elfman for a very short time in the early 90s, when I was the general manager of the New Wilshire Theater in Santa Monica, California. Landmark theaters used the backstage area of my theater as a warehouse for the 35mm prints that they owned and one of my responsibilities was to come up with some kind of catalog and tracking system for those movies, and to watch them when I could. Since I couldn't watch them during operating hours, I'd often have private after-hour screenings of the movies with friends. Those prints included an original print of George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, four episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show directed by the maestro himself, and War Game, not the 1983 Matthew Broderick movie, but a black-and-white BBC documentary from 1965, which supposed what could happen to the UK in the event of a nuclear war. That film would win the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 1967. I don't remember how Richard would come to first attend one of my screenings, but he'd show up from time to time, and it was cool to get to know him. As it was cool to get to know his brother, and the members of Boingo, but that's another story for another time. Long story short, after one of the screenings, I asked Richard if he could possibly bring a copy of his movie to screen, and while I don't remember the exact answer, he could not, for some legal reason. In fact, it wouldn't be until 2015, 
when he would regain the rights to his own movie. Now he's planning a sequel to Forbidden Zone. Having raised more than $120,000 from donations through Indiegogo to get the production going, Danny, who played the devil in the original movie, as well as composing the score, is expected to reprise both duties on the new film, and it's probably the closest we'll ever get to new Boingo music again. By 1968, Barbara Streisand was already a legend, despite having only been active as a professional recording artist and actor for six years. She won three consecutive Grammy Awards for Best Female Vocal Performance in 1963, 1964, and 1965, as well as a Grammy for Album of the Year for her first record, The Barbara Streisand Album. She would star in her first movie, an adaptation of her Broadway hit Funny Girl, for which she would win an Academy Award for Best Actress in an unprecedented tie with Katharine Hepburn. And she would option the screen rights to the Isaac Beshevis singer short story Yentl, the Yeshiva Boy, for herself to star in. Singer's story tells of an Ashkenazi Jewish girl in Poland in 1904 who decides in defiance of religious traditions, to dress and live like a man so that she can receive an education in Talmudic law after her father dies. The movie almost went into production in 1971 under the title Masquerade to be directed by Czech filmmaker Ivan Pazer, but executives at the studio actively discouraged the then 29-year-old Streisand from playing the teenage Yentl. Then, in 1979, the movie almost happened again, this time at Orion Pictures, with Streisand directing herself and Richard Gere. But Orion would soon bow out, and after interest from Paramount Pictures and her longtime home Warner Brothers, she and her producer boyfriend John Peters would make a deal at Polygram Pictures, thanks to Peters' relationship with the company's chairman, Peter Goober. Polygram would drop the project a few months later, and Streisand would set up the project at United Artists. After failing to get Michael Douglas to come aboard, Streisand would sign Broadway veteran Mandy Patinkin for his first leading role, as well as Amy Irving and Stephen Hill. The $14 million film would finally begin production in London in April 1982, and would move to Czechoslovakia in July. Yentl might not have been the best project for a first-time director, especially one who would also be starring in the leading and title role. It was reported in June 1982 that after two months of production, Streisand was already eight days behind schedule. A few months later, it was reported United Artists had sold a part of their investment in the movie to a British tax shelter group. And in April 1983, it was claimed Streisand had been removed as the producer of the project, in part because of the cost overruns that drove the budget up to nearly $20 million, prompting MGM UA Vice Chairman Frank Yablons 
to issue a press statement denying the report. But the film did go over budget, and Streisand reportedly covered the $4.3 million overrun herself. The film would have its world premiere in Los Angeles on November 16, 1983, two days before opening on 13 screens in Los Angeles, New York City, and Toronto. In the first three days, the film would gross $342,000 and would continue to play strong in those few theaters. The film would expand to 501 screens in its fourth week and would gross more than $3 million, good enough for fifth place. It would continue to add screens every week until it, it hit its widest release of 747 screens in week 11. The film would play in theaters for nearly a year, but 90% of its final $40.2 million box office haul would be made in the first three months. The film would be named one of the 10 best films of the year by both Time Magazine and the National Board of Review. It would win for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy at the Golden Globes, and Streisand's Golden Globe nomination for Best Director would be the first time any woman had been nominated for that award. And she would win against Ingmar Bergman for Fanny and Alexander, Bruce Beresford for Tender Mercies, James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment, Mike Nichols for Silkwood, and Peter Yates for The Dresser. Streisand would also be nominated for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, and Mandy Patinkin for Best Actor, and Michelle Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman would be nominated for Best Score and Best Song for The Way He Makes Me Feel. When the Academy Award nominations were announced a few weeks later, there would be no nod for Best Picture or for Best Director. Amy Irving would receive her sole acting nomination and there be nominations for Art Direction, and two for Best Song. But Yentl's sole Oscar would be for Best Original Song Score. The category Prince would win the following year for Purple Rain. But Yentl would also receive multiple nominations from the Zassholes, who do the Golden Raspberries, for Amy Irving for Worst Supporting Actress, Worst Musical Score, and Because Assholes Can't Help Being Assholes, Barbara Streisand for Worst Actor. The American Film Institute has recognized the film three times on their various 100 Years series, in 2004's 100 Years 100 Songs, and on 2006's 100 Years 100 Cheers and Greatest Movie Musical Lists. Papa, can you hear me? Papa, can you see me? Papa, can you find me in the night? Papa, are you near me? Papa, can you hear me? Papa, can you help me not be frightened? And speaking of Prince, our next film is his second film as an actor and first as director, Under the Cherry Moon which we talked about a bit during our summer of 1986 miniseries, so you may have already heard some of this. After the success of Purple Rain, selling more than $72 million worth of tickets worldwide against a $7.2 million budget, and an accompanying album that sold more than 8 million copies 
just in the United States in its first six months, Warner Brothers The Movie Studio and Warner Brothers Prince's Record Company were keen to get him in front of movie cameras again. So after he completed recording his seventh studio album, Around the World in a Day, in December 1984, Prince would work with first-time screenwriter Becky Johnson, who would be Oscar-nominated for her next screenplay, adapting Pat Conroy's novel The Prince of Tides for... uh, Checking my notes... Oh, hey, it's Barbara Streisand! On the story about two con artist brothers who attempt to swindle a soon-to-be wealthy heiress, only to see things get complicated when one of them falls in love with her. Prince originally wanted Madonna, at the time on the cusp of stardom and shooting her first movie Desperately Seeking Susan, to play the female lead Mary Sharon. Madonna would decline, so Prince would set up his girlfriend, Susanna Melvoin, sister of Prince's guitarist Wendy Melvoin, in the role. But it was clear to everyone involved, including Prince, that she may have been a hell of a singer and the inspiration for the song Nothing Compares to You, but she was not cut out to be an actress. So the production company went out and got one hell of an actress, future Oscar nominee Kristen Scott Thomas, who would be making her feature debut here. The production would begin in Nice, on the French Riviera, in September 1985, under the direction of award-winning music video director Mary Lambert, making her own feature directing debut here. But she and Prince would butt heads on many aspects of the film, and Lambert would quit the production after 14 shooting days. Michael Ballhaus, the brilliant cinematographer behind Scorsese's After Hours, The Color of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, and The Age of Innocence, as well as many of Rainer Werner Fassbender's best movies, would continue shooting the film while Prince and the producers came up with a list of new directors. Someone suggested Prince should direct it. After all, Prince had been directing his own music videos for a while. Now, the Directors Guild of America has a very strict rule about stars not being able to replace a director once a movie has begun shooting. But since the movie was shooting in France, and Prince was not a member of the DGA... Shooting would continue throughout the fall and early winter. One of the things Lambert and Prince would argue about was the look of the film. Lambert and Ballhouse were shooting the film in color, but Prince wanted the film to be in black and white. Since a good portion of the film had already been shot, it would be too late to switch the film stock and too expensive to go back and reshoot what had already been shot. So it was decided the film would be decolorized during post-production. Prince had written and recorded many of the songs for the movie before shooting began. He and the record company were so enthusiastic about the new material that they would rush out the first single, Kiss, which had been recorded in one day back in April 1985, in February 1986, a full four months before the movie's release. The accompanying video, featuring Prince and Wendy Melvoin, would introduce the world to Prince's new look inspired by his movie character Christopher Tracy, yet would not tie into the movie in any way. Even the album title, Parade, would not hint at it being a soundtrack. Only on the LP label itself would it say, Music from the Motion Picture Under the Cherry Moon. 
Parade would arrive in record stores at the end of March and would be amongst the best-selling records of the year and would be named amongst the best albums of the year by many music critics of the day. The movie, on the other hand, would follow a much different fate. The premiere for the movie would not happen in Los Angeles or New York City or Paris or Nice or even in Minneapolis. Instead, the movie would premiere in Sheridan, Wyoming, a small town of 14,000 people just south of the Wyoming-Montana border. Local chambermaid Lisa Barber had won a contest sponsored by Warner Brothers and MTV to host the premiere in the winner's hometown. So Prince and Friends, including Joni Mitchell and Ghostbusters singer Ray Parker Jr., arrived in the small town to see the movie on the big screen at the Centennial Twin Theater. The locals were not impressed. And when the film opened in 976 theaters on July 2nd, the buzz from the hit album and massively successful first single did not carry audiences into the theater. Under the Cherry Moon would not even open in the top 10, coming in 11th place with $3.151 million, $1,545 below the 10th place movie About Last Night, which had opened in 334 fewer theaters than Under the Cherry Moon. The film would lose 5% of its theaters and more than half of its audience in its second week and would mostly disappear from theaters by the end of the month with barely $10 million in ticket sales. Also, by the time the movie opened, Mary Lambert, who would get a credit for her work on the film as, quote, creative consultant, unquote, would be in Spain shooting her actual feature directing debut, Siesta, with Ellen Barkin, Gabriel Byrne, Isabella Rossellini, Martin Sheen, and Jodie Foster. Prince would direct two more movies, the 1987 concert film Sino the Times and 1990's Graffiti Bridge, a standalone sequel to Purple Rain, which he would also write. Once again, Prince is the kid, who now owns a local club in Minneapolis, and is still dueling with Morris Day, who is also now a club owner in Minneapolis, over which one is the better club owner. In interviews, Prince said that he was proud of the final product for Graffiti Bridge, but it would bomb at the box office too, and he would never star in, write, or direct another movie, and only appear one more time on any screen as himself in a memorable episode on the Zoe Deschanel show New Girl in 2014 before his untimely and still painful passing in April 2016. Of the artists on this list, Lori Anderson is probably the least known. She's never had a hit song on the Billboard Top 40, although one of her songs, the nearly eight-minute-long Oh Superman, was a surprise hit in Britain in 1982. Oh, Superman. Oh, John. 
and a snippet from another, Sharky's Day, was used for lifetime television bumpers back in the 80s and 90s. Now, there is one song of hers you probably know, co-written with and featuring guest vocals by former Genesis lead singer Peter Gabriel, Excellent Birds would appear on her 1984 album, Mr. Heartbreak. the song as This Is The Picture, Excellent Birds, and include it as a bonus track on cassette tapes and CD copies of his 1986 album, So. Sitting by the window, watching the snow. Anderson got her start in the early 1970s as an avant-garde performance artist. One of her works that would make her famous in that community was Duets on Ice, which would have her playing her violin along with a recording while skating on ice with blades frozen into a block of ice. The performance would last until the ice on the blades had melted away. She would regularly work with Andy Kaufman in the late 70s, and in 1981 released an album in collaboration with the musician John Giorno and writer William S. Burroughs called You're the Guy I Want to Share My Money With. Each artist contributed one side of the two-record set, with the fourth side multi-grooved, so you would hear a different track from either Anderson, Burroughs, or Giorno, depending on where the needle landed when you started to play that side. One of the songs that didn't make that album was Oh Superman, which would be released later in the year in the UK on 110 Records. When the song became a smash hit on that side of the Atlantic, Warner Brothers Records would sign her to a seven-record deal. While the albums were never big sellers, always doing about 125,000 units each sold, they would consistently be listed amongst the best albums released those years they came out. After Anderson finished her multimedia stage show, United States, in 1983, 
she set out to create a new project that would involve filming a live performance for theatrical exhibition. She would film a show from her tour to support Mr. Heartbreak, and, as film would be a new medium for her, she went to her friends Jonathan Demme and Martin Scorsese for advice on how to make a good concert movie. And it's not as if she didn't understand the importance of visuals in the New World media. Watching her original music videos for O oh Superman in 1981, when music videos were still in its infancy, or Excellent Birds in 1984 during an industry explosion of experimentation, and you can see that she has a true artist's eye when it comes to merging the music and the visuals. But as great as the songs were, and the videos even better, Anderson wasn't connecting with music audiences the way Warner Brothers was hoping. They requested a more radio-friendly song to be included in her next project, and Anderson ob obliged. She would re-record Smoke Rings, one of the songs she was going to include in her new concert and concert movie, with a faster tempo made especially for nightclubs, but that version would eventually never be released. She would also work with mega-producer Niall Rogers on a song called Language is a Virus that would get released as a single. It's not one of her better efforts, but it's still exceptional compared to a lot of the shit that was getting airplay at the time. Anderson, her band, and her production team geared up for a series of concerts that would be performed for audiences and the cameras at the Park Theater in Union City, New Jersey, just off the Lincoln Tunnel into Midtown Manhattan, in July 1985. The band would include King Crimson guitarist and singer Adrian Ballou, whose 1981 song Elephant Talk you hear at the end of each episode of this podcast. Anderson's friend William S. Burroughs would also appear for his spoken word part of the song Sharky's Night. But just days before the shows that were to be filmed were supposed to begin on the $1.65 million production, a major investor in the film dropped out, and the producers needed a scramble to get the needed funds. They were able to get the new money set up in a couple of days, and the crew would continue to build a special elevated stage, so various monitors, wires, delay units, cables, and the computer system responsible for Anderson's avant-garde music could be safely snaked around the stage, as well as a temporary 24-track digital recording studio that was specially built in the lobby of the theater. Over the course of 10 days, Anderson and her team would play 19 songs for crowds of 1,400 fans at a time. Anderson and her editor, Lisa Day, would spend the rest of 1985 and early 1986 shaping the film, getting the final edit down to a tight 90 minutes. Cinecom Pictures, the independent distributor, who had found success over the previous four years with such movies as Gregory Nava's El Norte, John Sayles' Brother from Another Planet, and Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, would acquire the film and would release it at the 57th Street Playhouse in Midtown Manhattan on April 25, 1986. For this engagement, the Playhouse would be equipped with Future Cinema, one of the very first digital cinema sound systems to be employed in a theater. But the reviews would be rather mixed, with several New York reviewers decrying the premier performance artist of the city 
debasing herself with such a crass attempt at mainstream commercialization. The film would only play four weeks, and not open again, until it played at the Cineplex Beverly Center and the Lemley Monica Four in Los Angeles on June 20th. The film would open in Chicago on July 25th, complete with an exceptional three-and-a-half-star review from Roger Ebert, and continue opening in regions across the country throughout the year. Ebert got what most of the other critics did not, that her songs and the movie were critiques on society at the time, that we were being pounded with bankrupt images and fascist noise trying to break us down as a society, to kill our spark of hope and decency, our soul of wit and edge of rebellion. I saw the film at the Nickelodeon in Santa Cruz months after the start of that first run in New York City. I wasn't the biggest Laurie Anderson fan, although her albums were around the house thanks to one of my roommates. I went in large part from the recommendation of my high school friend Beach, who had seen the movie in Europe over the summer, and I absolutely loved it. Maybe I didn't get everything out of it that Roger Ebert did, but it was one of my favorite movies of the year. And it appears Cinecom only printed a couple copies of the movie and just moved them about every few weeks, which was probably the best move. Most of the playdates would only last a week and would be sparsely attended at best. The film would play out nationwide over the course of two and a half years, but would only gross a total of $1.25 million. The film was briefly available on VHS and Laserdisc in the early 1990s, from Warner Brothers Records, and in 2007, Anderson announced on her official website that the film would be released to DVD as part of a video box set. But the announcement was later removed and the box set never released. The only way to see the film, at least at this moment as I'm recording it, is a fairly decent 1.33 to 1 transfer on YouTube. Of all the people on this list, David Byrne becoming a filmmaker would be the least surprising. Byrne had been a student at the Rhode Island School of Design right after high school, and he had been directing videos for Talking Heads for years, and was the principal creator of the visual style for the Speaking in Tongues tour from which Jonathan Demme's genre-defining Stop Making Sense film was born. In fact, it would be the success of Stop Making Sense, both as a film and a double-platinum-selling soundtrack, that would convince producer Edward R. Pressman, who had already been producing or executive producing films such as Brian De Palma's Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise, Terrence Malick's Badlands, and John Milius's Conan the Barbarian, to give Byrne $5 million to make its feature directing debut with True Stories. A collector of stories from supermarket tabloids he had read and local television shows he watched while out on tour, Byrne would work on the screenplay for True Stories with his friend, actor-writer Stephen Tobolowsky, and Tobolowsky's girlfriend, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Beth Henley, in late 1984, after Talking Heads finished recording Little Creatures, their studio follow-up to Speaking in Tongues. One character, Swoozy Kurtz's Miss Rawlings, is a woman who never leaves her bed, and was based on something Byrne had read in the Weekly World News. While Alex Elias is the cute woman, who loves cute things and cannot endure sadness for even a moment, 
came from a local television show host who painted pictures of puppies. Byrne himself would star as the nameless narrator, a traveler in a red convertible who arrives in Virgil, Texas, where he comments on the citizens of the city as they prepare for the Celebration of Specialness, an event sponsored by a local computer manufacturing plant to mark the sesquicentennial anniversary of Texas's independence from Mexico. Our humble narrator, always dressed in some kind of pseudo-cowboy gear complete with a stereotypical cowboy hat, meets and interacts with a number of town folk in Virgil. True Stories would be the first major starring role for future national treasure John Goodman, who plays Louis Fine, a cleanroom technician at the local computer manufacturing plant, who loves to sing country songs and goes as far as putting a commercial on local television to help find him someone to love. The late great actor and monologist, Spalding Gray, still a year away from breaking into the cultural zeitgeist with Jonathan Demme's cinematic capture of his Swimming to Cambodia monologue, plays a local civics leader who loves to tell stories, but has a weird tick about speaking directly to his wife Kay. Gospel legend Pop Staples would make his only acting performance in the movie as Miss Rawlings' personal assistant, a compassionate voodoo doctor who Lewis hires to help him find love. And Tito Lariva of The Plugs, Cruzados, and Tito and Tarantula plays Ramon, a Tejano singer who claims to have synesthesia, or the ability to hear tones from people. Byrne would begin production in McKinney, Texas, about a half hour north of Dallas, in mid-September 1985, with the great Ed Lachman, who had worked with Susan Seidelman on Desperately Seeking Susan the previous year, as cinematographer. The movie would shoot for six weeks and involve a local of number actors, as well as footage from a number of parades that happened in and around the area during the time of production, including a Mexican Independence Day celebration where Byrne and his crew would film the actors interacting with the festivities. The other members of the Talking Heads, Chris Franz, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth, would appear briefly in the film. After post-production was completed in San Francisco, Pressman and the movie's producer, Gary Kerfurst, who was also the band's manager, took the film to various distributors for acquisition. The winning bid would come from Warner Brothers Pictures, which made sense as Warner's was a part of the same conglomerate that owned Sire Records, who had signed Talking Heads to a recording contract way back in 1976. The movie would open at the Sutton Theater in New York City on October 10th, and the Man Plaza in Westwood two weeks later on October 24th, when it also added another 15 theaters in the greater New York area. The film would slowly expand throughout the fall and winter, but after four months, the film would only gross about $2.55 million. There would actually be two albums released in connection with True Stories. The first would be the seventh studio album from Talking Heads, released four weeks ahead of the movie. The album is not a traditional soundtrack album, as most of the songs in the movie are performed by the actors. The album was a traditional Talking Heads album. Nine songs, which were featured in the movie, all written and composed by Byrne and performed by the band. 
But after three successive albums, Speaking in Tongues, Stop Making Sense, and Little Creatures, all having sold at least two million copies, this would be their first studio album since 1980's Remain in Light to have gone only gold. Like with Prince and Under the Cherry Moon, the not-quite-soundtrack album would sell more copies than the movie it was supporting would sell tickets. The second album, called Sounds from True Stories, was a more traditional soundtrack album in that the sounds on this album would come from the movie, including parts of the score written and performed by Byrne, and background Muzak-like songs by Texas polka musician Carl Finch from the scenes in the mall. Some songs, like John Goodman performing People Like Us with the members of Talking Heads, would only be available as a B-side on the Wild Wild Life single and not appear on any album until November 2018, when Nonsuch Records would release True Stories, a film by David Byrne, the complete soundtrack, a 23-track compendium of all the music from the movie. He had a really good voice, didn't he? After True Stories, Talking Heads would only record and release one more album, Naked, in June 1988, as experimental as anything they'd ever recorded. David Byrne would leave the band shortly thereafter, but the rest of the band apparently never got the word. Franz, Harrison, and Weymouth didn't find out Byrne had left until three years later, around the release of the Talking Heads compilation album Sand in the Vaseline, in an interview he gave with the Los Angeles Times. The group would reunite only once in 2002, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Byrne would win an Academy Award for composing the score to Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor in 1987, alongside Japanese techno-pop musician Ryuichi Sakamoto and Chinese composer Kong Su. Byrne would continue to release albums and occasionally make documentaries about his music. His collaboration with director Spike Lee, American Utopia, covering Byrne's 2019 appearance on Broadway, premiered at the Toronto Film Festival the week I recorded this, before airing on HBO on October 17th. In the 1990s and 2000s, 
musicians becoming filmmakers became more of a normal thing. Madonna's directed a couple movies. Rob Zombie has directed several. RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan just released his third feature film as director, Cutthroat City, just last month. Neil Young, Ice Cube, Poison frontman Brett Michaels, Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips, and Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian have all directed dramatic narrative movies. Even Fred fucking Durst of Limp Bizkit has directed three films. Most recently, 2019's The Fanatic, starring John Travolta. You can continue not watching that one. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help get the show seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.